Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisements that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth." Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the will or word and the will of the Lord. Please take your seats. Hey guys, good morning. Are you guys awake? Cough, coffee not strong this morning, huh? Um, well, it's good to see you. My name is Luis, for those of you who may not know me, and I am one of the pastors here. If you are visiting today for the first time, uh, welcome to Taproot. Behind the ba- or on the back of every chair, you will find a Connect card. Uh, and if this is your first time visiting us, or if you've been here for a little while and have not yet gotten a chance to fill one of these cards out, we just ask you to please do so for us. This will help us to know that you are here. It will help us to know how we can pray for you, how we can get you connected, and uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, once you fill those out, you can either drop those cards off uh, on, into the giving box along the back wall, or you can stop by the Connect desk in the foyer and drop them off there. And again, thanks for doing that. Well, uh, the Christmas season is in full swing, and um, I'm not 
I don't know about you, but, but I really, really love the Advent and Christmas season. Anybody else with me? Like totally Christmas fans? Yeah, I love it. A couple of things that, that I love about Christmas, we, or a couple of new traditions that, that we are trying to instill. Um, I love traditions, family, family traditions. Uh, one thing that we are doing this year is we are doing what is called the Jesse tree. Anybody else ever heard of a Jesse tree? One person, sweet. A couple people. Well, that, I'm not going to spoil the party, so just go get on Google and, uh, and look it up. But it's a, it's a cool way to remember and try to see the st- all of the story of Scripture leading up to, uh, to Jesus in a very tangible way. So anyway, if you, you can ask Siri. She'll tell you what is a Jesse tree. Um, we also heard about this... Um, thing in Bellevue? Anybody gone to the Snowflake Lane? No? A couple? It's cool. Like, I was surprised that from like the day after Thanksgiving till like the end of December, they do this legitimate parade every night. That's crazy to me. So we went to that the first night it opened and I almost uh, lost my salvation there because it was Packed. I mean, I had had not seen so many people in one place in a long time, and uh, it was uh, quite. Uh, my patience was was uh, was was being tested. But I'm sure that if you go now, it's been a couple of weeks. It, it it can't be as bad as it was that first night. And it was a great it was a great show. So, uh, anyways, now something that I'm totally convinced about uh, is that it always seems that the season of Advent. Or the season of Christmas comes just at the right time. In the midst of hectic, busy, chaotic schedules. Anybody can say amen to that, right? Holiday schedules are nuts. And at the end of another year that was violent, troubled, and full of chaos, our hearts in December are often heavy Our bodies are tired and weary, and our souls are ready for the justice and the peace, the the shalom, the flourishing that only Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can provide. And so during this season, we pause. We, we, We pause for three weeks, and we remember the first coming of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And the three weeks of Advent, what they do is they, they still our hearts and they, they focus our attention on the miracle of the newborn king. The lyrics to this great Christmas carol say this, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Now, another thing that we should do during this season of Advent is to look forward to and to long for the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ, just as we rejoice that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, like the prophet Isaiah says, we also wait expectantly for the moment when night will be no more And there will be no more need for light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, as we can find and read in the book of Revelations. 
In, in a world where war and famine persists, where injustice is everywhere, where the wounds of, of the Parkland, Florida shooting or the Thousand Oaks, California shooting are still fresh, we cry out again for God's presence. Again, the, the lyrics to that Christmas carol are true. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put the flight. So Advent began this past Sunday, December the 2nd, and it'll continue till Christmas Eve. And this season is an opportunity for, for individuals, for families, for churches to celebrate, to rejoice, to contemplate together both of Christ's Advents, the one already and the one not yet. And what this season does for us is that it, it invites us into both festive joy, celebration, and also worshipful waiting. Now, with all of those thoughts in mind, last week we started a, a short sermon series that we are simply calling Christ of Christmas. And in that first sermon, we looked at the importance of making sure that our expectations about Jesus match what the Bible says about Jesus. And, and really my goal, if I'm trying to trying to boil down what I said last week, my goal was for us to, to, to encourage you and us to not settle for anything less than a big Jesus. In that sermon, we trace the story of Christ throughout the Old Testament, and what we saw is that Christ came primarily to do two main things. He came to deal with our sin as our Savior, and He came to be our King. Now, what happened last week, last sermon set the stage for what we're going to do for the next three weeks. Today, we are going to look at Jesus being our Savior who came to save and forgive. Next week, we're going to look more deeply at Jesus being the eternal King that we as His people are to obey and follow. Then on the Sunday before Christmas, after we hear our children sing, which is incredibly cute, we are going to look at the nativity story and why it was necessary for Jesus to be both the Son of God and the Son of Man. This is what theologians have called the hypostatic union. This is your uh, $20 word for you today, okay? Now, as, that's a fun word, hypostatic. All right. As we said last week... We're doing this for a reason, to make clear in our minds who the true Messiah is, who the true Savior is, and to match our expectations to who he actually is from Scripture. Because there are so many counterfeit Christs that it is easy to get sidetracked and disillusioned when things don't go the way we expect. Now, for instance, we might love the pillow top Jesus we talked about last week. And if you weren't here last week, what I did is I gave us 13 Jesuses from popular culture that we love. You can find our sermon from last week on the website, tapreadchurch.org forward slash sermons. But pillow top Jesus is the king of the happiest place on earth. And what happens when the trials of life hit and we are left, left licking our wounds and wondering what just hit us. Or, or we might love the Dr. Phil Jesus who tells us great tough things, gives us great advice. But after we do all that he has listed for us to do in order for us no, to no longer be broken, what happens when we are actually still unbroken 
we're still broken and we're not well. So we've got to match our expectations about Jesus with the Jesus of the scriptures. Jesus came to deal with our sin. He came to save us and he also came to be our king. He is the savior king. And everything else that we get is simply icing on the cake. Now, as, as we start, let me, let me say this. If you've been a Christian for, for a long time and, and you would say that you are pretty strong in your faith and that you've heard these truths before, I would encourage you to not let these truths become trite or common. And may these eternal truths move your heart again and afresh to worship and to adore our Savior. Now, if you would call yourself a Christian, but, but if you're honest and things have been hard, you are struggling, you are confused, you are hurting, my prayer, my hope is that these truths would settle your heart, encourage your soul, and give you hope. And if you would not call yourself a Christian, we would just invite you into conversation. These, these truths about Jesus have changed our lives. Jesus himself has changed our lives. So I would invite you to discuss and talk about what you hear today with whoever invited you to come. Okay, so this morning we are going to look at Isaiah 53, and, and this is why. Now, this may be a broad statement that I'm about to make, but, but let me go with it. The, the main message of the prophets in the Old Testament was this. There is a Messiah, there is a Savior who is coming, who will redeem his people and who will restore all things. He is coming to proclaim judgment and peace. He is coming to declare restoration through repentance. He is coming to save and destroy. But this is clear. The Messiah was coming. The Savior was coming. The prophets foretold that there was one that was going to come to redeem and restore all things. And again, this is what Advent is all about. We remember Jesus' first coming, and then we look forward to his second Advent, his second coming. So again, the message was this. There was a Savior coming, and he was coming to save and forgive. And the prophet Isaiah is the prophet who proclaimed most about the coming Messiah than any other prophet. He spoke of the way he would come and the characteristics of the Messiah. So you got to notice how he does it. Let me give you two other Isaiah scriptures. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. He also said in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with King, uh, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The seal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then, and then finally, we, we come to his most famous messianic prophecy, which is our text for today, Isaiah 53. 
Throughout Isaiah's prophecy, there is this word of the coming Savior. And what we will find in our text is one of the clearest pictures of what the Savior would look like when he came and what he was actually coming to do. So we're going to look at Isaiah 53 this morning together. So let me, let me pray and we'll go, we'll go from there. Father, I, I pray this morning that you would allow us to see Christ incredibly clear. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, I pray that you would move and be at work. May the gospel draw people to yourself. May the gospel transform folks. May the gospel encourage hearts. And may the gospel never become something that is common. May you be glorified today as we look at your words. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let me say this too before we start here. If, you, uh, if you're new to the Bible uh, or if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles uh, in the back that if you need a Bible today, you can take one home. It's our gift to you. And uh, you can find the book of Isaiah in the table of content. content, con, content. I was going to say context, but that was not. Uh, the chapter will be kind of the big number on the page, and what looks like footnotes, footnotes, holy cow, footnotes, footnotes is the little numbers. Come on, again, I've got the greatest excuse, you guys. English is my second language, so <laughs> nobody else can pull that card often, so it's good. All right. Again, we have a Bible for you. If you, if you need one, those are for you to take home as a gift, and here is the big idea. Now, this is Incredibly simple, but powerful. And here is that thought. Jesus Christ is the Savior who has come to save us and forgive us. And we're going to see this clearly in our Isaiah text. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you would be very familiar with Isaiah 53. Nowhere in the Old Testament is messianic expectation clearer. This passage could not be more concrete about what we were to expect when the Savior showed up. The Jews believed these pages to be holy, and their confidence in the authority of this text is extremely high. And nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of Jesus shine brighter. For in our text, we will see our Savior's life, death, and resurrection in full display. So let's look first at the Savior's life. Isaiah 53, we'll see this in verses 2 and 3. And I would encourage you this morning to either keep your Bible open or your Bible app open and to kind of mark the things that we will see. Now, as we look at these two verses, we first have got to ask this question. What type of Savior would we think should come for us? What type of Savior would we want to come for us? What type of champion would come to your mind who would fit the description of the Genesis 3.15 hero who was going to come to crush the serpent's head? I mean, 
obviously he has to be faster than Flash, stronger than Hulk, and smarter than Batman, right? We might think of him as being one who has remarkable intellect, communication, and charisma that would handle any debate with precision and charm people with his words. We would most certainly think of a savior who everybody would recognize and someone that everybody would respect. He might be feared like Maximus from the movie Gladiator or someone with the strength of Goliath. But instead, notice how the prophet spoke of the coming Messiah. Look verses 2 and 3. A young plant, a root out of dry ground, no form or majesty that we should look upon him, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, and we esteemed him not. Now in short, there is, there is nothing about the Messiah's life that would make any of us choose him for the yearbooks most likely to be the savior of the world. And this description fits what we see about Jesus in the New Testament. You take, for instance, that Jesus was born to poor parents in a lowly manger. The place where oxen would lay would be the place where our Savior would be born. Take, for instance, that he was raised in the town of Nazareth, a town that people would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember that he chose a lowly band of followers, this little motley crew. He chose fishermen and despised tax collectors to be his nearest companions. Take, for instance, that the Jewish people, when they looked upon Christ, they rejected him so deeply that they demanded that he be crucified, which was a death that was reserved for the most debased criminals. So, so perhaps in Scripture we might find no other person who is as common and lowly, despised and rejected than Jesus. And if we were to objectively look at the Savior's life, friends, we might not recognize him as such without these words from Isaiah. So is this Jesus the one you are looking for? Are you looking for a despised and rejected Savior who is lowly and not one that we would notice. You see, this is one of the reasons we struggle with the reality of who Jesus is and who Jesus was. For those in the religion of Islam, Jesus isn't powerful enough. He wasn't favored enough. And there is no way that God in human form could be despised. For many in our world, they, they want and they are looking for a hero that looks like Thor, lives like Tony Stark, and comes from outer space like Superman. But a hero that is lowly, despised, and rejected. That is not our kind of savior. But here is the truth. He is exactly the savior we need. He, he had to be despised. He had to be lowly. He had to be rejected in order to die. I mean, just, just think about this for a moment. Would they have killed an emperor? Would they have killed and slaughtered a victorious military leader who conquered Rome? Would they have, 
would they have killed this general military and politically? No. And we wouldn't either. But, but a lowly dude from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, this crazed teacher saying he's God's son? So you got to notice now the Savior's death. You got to see this in verses 4 through 10. Now again, this, this is a fact. Jesus, the Savior, was born to die. Our champion came to die. Champions don't die. Saviors save. They don't die. Kings rule. They don't die. And this is a challenge for many because it doesn't make sense that our Savior, our champion, our king, would die. He, he shouldn't die. And this is not what the Jewish were, were expecting. They were looking for a, a conquering hero, a, a military, a political leader who would return Israel to her glorious days of the past. But instead, the prophet prophesies of the, of the Savior's death. And notice how the prophet portrays his death. Verses 4 and 5. He shows us first that it is a substitutionary death. In other words, the Savior's death is in the place of his people. You see this again in verses 4 and 5. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. That little word for is important. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took upon himself the, the chastisement or the, the punishment that earned our peace. His wounds, which were caused by his piercing by being crushed and the punishment that we deserved healed us. But the question then would be, what are our griefs? What are our sorrows? What are those transgressions, iniquities? And why do we need peace? What do we need to be healed of? In verse 6 in the text is the crystal clear explanation of those questions. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So what, what the prophet is describing here is sin. He describes our rebellious hearts before God. He describes what we have done as humans since the beginning of time. God gave us one command, and we rebelled and we turned from him. And from this point and on, we have done nothing but turn from God like rebellious sheep going our own way. But notice in the text, the kindness, the justice, the mercy of God, even though we acted that way, notice what the prophet declares, the Lord laid on our Savior the iniquity of us all. If, if those words don't move you, friend, You see, our, our griefs and sorrows are our sin. Our transgressions and iniquities are the sins that we naturally do every single day. And we need to be healed, not, not primarily of physical ailments, but primarily of a spiritual ailment. And the Lord laid on our Savior our sin to such a degree that Jesus carried our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, and our iniquities as if they were his own. And he did this willingly and sacrificially. Look at verses 7, 8, and the beginning of verse 9. 
Jesus was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In other words, he, he didn't balk. He didn't try to wiggle out of it. He didn't rebel and try to find a loophole. Again, in the text, like a lamb led to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. The, the prophet shows us that the Savior's death was like that one of an innocent lamb giving up his life. And to display Jesus' innocence, the end of verse 9 says this, he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. And you got to notice these terms that we see in the, the text. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and he was cut from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. We, we think of oppression as slavery, bondage, and pain. We think of judgment as wrath, anger, and justice. These are, these are not soft terms the prophet uses. These are painful, harsh, bare, and raw. And so the Savior's death was in our place. It was substitutionary in nature. It was painful, willing, and sacrificial in order to bring peace with God. It was a death that he innocently went to without balking or trying to change it. He willingly submitted himself to it. And here is the kicker. Look at verse 10. He did, this, he did it all because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yes, Jesus willingly suffered. Jesus willingly gave his life. But did his love hold him there? Did his mercy sustain him there? Did his champion's heart make him stick to that crushing and piercing cross? Verse 10 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus willingly gave himself to be pierced and crushed and bruised because God wanted him to do so. His substitutionary death was to fulfill the will of God. In other words, this was not plan B. This was the plan God had in mind all along. And Jesus drank it all. Jesus did it all in order to satisfy everything that God had commanded. God told man, if you eat of the forbidden tree, you will die. And Jesus Christ died as a man in our place. God's will must be fulfilled in order for man to be at peace with God. And our Savior fulfilled every little bit of God's will. Now, if, if we stayed right there, this would be the worst sermon ever, right? But thankfully, our story doesn't end there. Because what happens if the champion in the story stays dead? What happens if, if death conquered him? Well, everything that he would have done in his life and death would be ineffective. If Jesus stayed death, dead, then his death could not be eternally satisfying to God and it would not benefit us. He would be no different than those yearling lambs who were offered at the temple's doorstep. And that is why verses 10 through 12 in the text help us because they tell us of the Savior's resurrection. We know this by the future tense verbs that are used in those verses. Verse 10 after his soul makes an offering for guilt, or after he dies, a substitute's death, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. But satisfied for what? That many will be accounted righteous. In other words, Jesus will find great joy and satisfaction in this fact. His death and resurrection secured our right standing before God. Verse 12, he will have a portion or an inheritance and shall divide his conquering winnings with others. And notice that he will make intercession for transgressors. And again, these, these, these words are all in the future tense because they speak of something happening after his death. In order for him to have any of the things listed here, he must be alive. Therefore, the resurrection is incredibly important. Now we're getting somewhere. A resurrected champion is a much better champion than all others. We, we all know this. We, we've all been here and felt this way. How did you feel when, when Stan Lee passed away? The, the iconic comic book writer who wrote about and created these incredible champions who rescued humanity from some evil villain. He can't die. I mean, his heroes don't die. Or, or what about uh, MLK, the great champion of the civil rights movement? He, he wasn't supposed to die. But here is the reality. All men die. All champions die. All heroes die. All kings die. But only one Savior is raised from the dead. Only one champion conquered death and the resurrection of Christ is the act upon which God declared him to be the Son of God. It is the act that made Jesus' life and death effective to save and forgive, which is what he came to do. You see, without verses 10 through 12, which speak of the resurrection, we get nothing from verses 4 through 11 in the text. So then the question would be, this has all been pretty theological. What, what do we get from our Savior's life and death and resurrection? What, what does this mean for us? What are our rewards that we don't deserve and we did nothing to accomplish? And we'll see this again throughout the text. The first thing we, we receive, the first thing we get, our first reward is that we have a satisfying substitute. Do you see this? Jesus Christ is the only satisfying substitute for your sin. Adam and Eve tried to use fig leaves to cover up their sin. But God uses Christ. So, so don't go back into your leaf closet. You, you don't have to hide in your sin any longer. Christ is our satisfying substitute. The prophet of old declared this to be true. And Jesus shows up in the first century to fulfill all that these words say. Our second reward is that we have peace with God. Jesus Christ has earned our peace with God. He bought it with his own blood. He bought it by his piercing, his bruising, and his crushing. And this peace with God means this. We are no longer enemies of God in sin, we are children of God in Christ. Church, Christian, this means 
that we have access to God as our Father. The, the door to his office has been kicked open, and it is always open. It means we have a place that is stable. It means that the God of the universe hears you when you pray. It means he is always with us. He will never forsake us. Our third reward is that we have been healed from our griefs and our sorrows. Many have taken this verse to simply mean our physical healness, our physical, that he can heal our physical sickness and disease, and we can understand why. However, I would like to submit that that alone is aiming too low. Sickness and disease are on earth because of the effects of the sin of man. Now, now hear me. Sickness and disease, they are absolutely not beyond the ability of God to heal. Amen? Amen. We, we believe that God is a God who can heal our sickness and disease. We, we believe that. We will pray for that. But, but the context of Isaiah's prophecy is not about physical estrangement from God or physical grief and sorrow. Rather, this healing and the one true healing that Jesus guarantees us is healing of our transgressions and iniquities. This is what that means. This means healing from the penalty of sin, which is death. The Savior's death was the death that we deserved. He took our death upon himself, and the penalty of sin is no longer ours. And this is what that also means. you got to listen to this, Christian. We have been healed from the power or from the control of sin. The Savior's perfect life conquered sin's control over us. Jesus perfectly obeyed God, never submitted to sin's power, to sin's dominion. Remember the text said there was no deceit found in his mouth. And when he died and rose again, he broke the back of sin's control. Now, this means if you've trusted Jesus, in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been healed from having to submit to sin's power. You are healed from needing to sin. You've, you've been given power. Jesus' power to obey God. You have been given the ability to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Before we trusted in Christ, before we were saved, all we could do was say yes to sin. But no longer is that true. Because of Christ's sacrifice, the, the power of sin, capital S, sin has been broken. And that is fantastic news. You don't have to be in sin for the rest of your life. Addicted like a slave to it. Now, let me couple that with this. Now, we are, we are still in a process of growing in grace, right? We are not yet glorified. We are, we are in the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And because that is true, we will sin. Little s sins. And when that happens, don't hide in your sin. You have a satisfying substitute 
You run through Jesus and let these truths set you free. There is power and there is one who became sin for you. You have been justified. God sees you, Christian, through Christ, in Christ, as though you have always obeyed and you have never sinned. Man, that is fantastic news. This is a much greater healing than only being healed of a physical sickness. Our fourth reward. Our sins have been transferred to Christ and his righteousness is transferred to us. You, you simply cannot miss the little word for, F-O-R, in verse 6. He was pierced for, he was crushed for, and we cannot miss verse 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is crystal clear language. Jesus died in our place because our sin was placed on him as if he had done it. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And the only way our sin could be fully atoned for was for God to require someone else who was perfect to take our sin as if it was his own. And Jesus did this. And in exchange, we get his righteousness. Our sin goes to Jesus. His righteousness goes to you. Theologians have called this the great exchange. Do you see the amazing news in verse 11 that by him many are accounted as righteous? This, this means, Christian, that rather than being clothed in our sin before God, because Jesus lived perfectly, because he died in our place, and he rose again victoriously, we are clothed in his righteousness. God no longer sees you, Christian, in your sin. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. Let's let, think about that for a second. You are no longer seen in your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. Man, I know my sin. I know what I've done. Let that, let that truth move you. And set you free. This is on the screen. Jerry Bridges, perhaps better than anyone, explained it this way. Therefore, when Christ lived a perfect life, in God's sight, we lived a perfect life. When Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, we died on the cross. All that Christ did in his sinless life, in his sin-bearing death, he did as our representative so that we receive the credit for it. When Christ pleased the Father, we pleased the Father. This is simply incredible, wonderful good news. And the last benefit, the last reward we get because of Jesus the Savior's death is the fact that our Savior makes intercession for us. Look at the end of verse 12. This, those words that he, he makes intercession for us, this means that our Savior, who is alive because of his resurrection, is standing before God for us. 
He is interceding for you. He is praying for you. He is pleading for God on your behalf, on our behalf, showing God his righteousness, not our sin. It means he is always with us. It means that you, friend, are not alone. You're not alone in the heavenly realm because your Savior is there as your advocate and defense attorney. And you're not alone on the earthly realm because you are His. Christ lives to make intercession for us. So just recap with me. Step back for a second and breathe Isaiah's messianic air. We've seen our Savior's life, lowly, rejected, and despised. We've seen our Savior's death, substitutionary, sacrificial, painful, and fulfilling all God's will. We've seen our Savior's resurrection making effect of all that he did in his life and death. And we've seen our rewards. We have a substitute. We have peace with God. We've been healed. We have Christ's righteousness, and we have a faithful intercessor. No wonder when when the angels announced the birth to the shepherds, they said, I bring you good news of great joy. These are the best news on the planet, friend. So here is the question. Isn't this Savior better than the Guru Jesus? Isn't he better than prosperity Jesus? Isn't he better than BFF Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible exceeds our expectations by living, dying, and rising again from the dead. He gives us more than we could ever deserve and more than we could ever dream. And if this was all he ever gave us, you know what, church? That would be enough. He came to be our Savior. Jesus was born to die. He came to save us. A savior, a savior who would save and forgive us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I... God, I thank you for these truths that we talked about today. I pray that, that, that my, my prayer has been all along that, that, that if for those of us, maybe we've been walking with Christ for a long time and we know these things, God, may, may these truths, may they move us, God, again. May they, may they move our hearts again anew and afresh to, to worship and adore you, God. Pray, I pray for those that, that, are, that are, 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 you know, are struggling, who are confused, who, who are hurting. God, may, may you, may you settle their hearts. You are for them. You are praying for them. You are, you are close to the brokenhearted. 
for those in sin. Man, they don't, we don't longer have to hide in our sin. We can run to Christ. For those that are struggling with addiction, man, there is, there is power in Jesus. So God, come and, and, and for those that are struggling and confused and hurting, man, come and be near to them, Lord. I pray for those who may not know you, God. Draw them to yourself and may they see the beauty of Christ this morning. These, these are the greatest news in the universe, God. May they never become old. May they never become common, God. May they transform our lives and may they affect everything we do every single day, God. We remember your first coming. You came to save us. And we long for your second coming, God. Now we respond in worship. And as we do that, God, continue to move. Continue to be at work in people's hearts and lives this morning. Pray this in your name.